A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens Read by Tony Turner The Last of the Three Spirits The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night, and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I, I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed downward with its hand. You, you are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand. Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen, but as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company, and, and, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on change, amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and clinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said the great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? inquired another. Uh, last night, I believe. What was the matter with him? asked a third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff-box. "'God knows!' said the first, with a yawn. Uh, "'What has he done with his money?' asked a red-faced gentleman, with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose that shook like 
gills of a turkey cock. I haven't heard, said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Hasn't left it to me, it's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's very likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker. For upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the excrescence on his nose. But, but I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. Quiet and dark beside him stood the phantom, with its outstretched hand. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly, and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort there was a low-browed, beetling shop. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse-iron of all kinds. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a grey-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age, who had screened himself from the cold air without by a frowsy curtaining of miscellaneous tatters hung upon a line and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement scrooge and the phantom came into the presence of this man just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop but she had scarcely entered when another woman similarly laden came in too and she was closely followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. <laughs> "'Let the charwoman alone to be the first, cried she, who had entered first. "'Let the laundress alone to be the second. "'and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. "'Look here, old Joe, here's a chance. "'If we haven't all three met here without meaning it... But "'You couldn't have met in a better place,' said old Joe, "'removing his pipe from his mouth. "'Come into the parlour, come into the parlour.' "'The parlour was the space behind the screen of rags. "'The old man raked the fire together with an old stair-rod and... "'having trimmed his smoky lamp with the stem of his pipe, "'put it in his mouth again. "'While he did this, the woman, who had already spoken, "'threw her bundle on the floor "'and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, "'crossing her elbows on her knees "'and looking with bold defiance at the other two. "'What odds, then? What odds, Mrs Dibbler? said the woman. "'Every person has a right to take care of themselves. "'He always did.' "'Eh, that's true indeed.' said the laundress. No man more so. Very well, then. That's enough. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. If you wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying gasping out his last there, alone by himself. It's the truest word that ever was spoke, said Mrs Dibbler. It's a judgment on him. "'Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. "'Speak out plain, I'm not afraid to be first, "'nor afraid for them to see it. 
And we know pretty well that we were up in ourselves before we were here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this. And the man, in faded black, mounting the breach first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. They were severally examined and appraised by old Joe, who talked the sums as he was disposed to give for each upon the wall, and added them up into a total when he found there was nothing more to come. "'It's your account,' said Joe. "'And I won't give another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next?' Mrs. Dibblow was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. Ah, I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine, and that's the way I've ruined myself. That's your account. If you ask me for another penny, then I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knees by the greatest convenience of opening it, and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this? said Joe. Bed curtains? You don't mean to say you took them down, rings and all, with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe. You'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out for the sake of such a man as he was. I promise you, Joe. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Whose else do you think they are? cried the woman. Isn't likely to take cold without them, I dare say. Spinach, said Scrooge shuddering from head to foot. I see, I, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way. Merciful heaven, what's this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched the bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced round it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom, its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it, but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the spectre at his side. "'Spirit!' he said. This is a fearful place. In leaving it I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let me go. Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I, I understand you. 
and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I, I have not the power. Again it seemed to look upon him. Is there any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death? <laughs> Let me see some tenderness connected with the death, said Scrooge, or, or that dark chamber spirit which we left just now will be for ever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner, and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. "'Colour hurts my eyes,' she said. "'It makes them weak by candlelight, "'and I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father "'when he comes home for the world. "'It must be near his time.' "'Past it, rather,' Peter answered, shutting up his book. "'But I think he's walked a little slower than he used "'these last evenings, mother.' "'They were very quiet again.' At last she said, and in a steady, cheerful voice that only faltered once, I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder, very fast indeed. And so have I, cried Peter, often. And so have I, exclaimed another, so had all. But he was very light to carry, she resumed, intent upon her work, and his, his father loved him so that it was no trouble. <laughs> No trouble. And there is your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob in his comforter came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it most. Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face, as if they said, Don't mind it, father. Don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table, and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They will be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went today, then, Robert? said his wife. Yes, my dear, returned Bob. I wish you could have gone. Would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. My little child, my little child. They drew about the fire and talked, the girls and mother working still. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and, and who, meeting him in the street that day, and seeing that he looked a little, just a little down, you know, inquired what had happened to distress him. On which, said Bob, I told him, "'I'm heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit,' he said. "'If I can be of service to you in any way,' he said, "'giving me his card. "'That's where I live. "'Pray come to me.' "'It really seemed as if he'd known our tiny Tim "'and felt with us.' "'Mrs. Cratchit kissed him. 
His daughters kissed him. The two young Cratchits kissed him, and Peter and himself shook hands. Spectre, said Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look round before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man, whose name he had now to learn, lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying fat, with depleted appetite, a worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it, trembling. "'Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point,' said Scrooge, "'answer me one question. "'Are these the shadows of the things that will be, "'or are they shadows of things that may be only?' "'Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. "'Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. No, spirit, Oh, no, no. The finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its robe. Hear me. I, I'm, I'm not the man I was. I, I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this? Am I, am I past all hope? For the first time the hand appeared to shake. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honour Christmas in my heart, and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. The end of it. And the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, 
heaven and the christmas time be praised for this i say it on my knees old jacob on my knees he was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call he had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit and his face was wet with tears they are not torn down cried scrooge folding one of his bed curtains in his arms they are not torn down rings and all they are here yeah, i am here the shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled they will be i know they will his hands were busy with his garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravagance. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. What, what's today? cried Scrooge, calling down to a boy in Sunday clothes. What's today, my fine fellow? said Scrooge. Today? replied the boy. Why, it's Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. <laughs> of course they can. <laughs> Hello, my fine fellow. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? Scrooge inquired. Oh, I should hope I did, replied the lad. Oh, an intelligent boy, said Scrooge. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not, not the little prize turkey, the big one. What, the one as big as me, returned the boy. What a delightful boy, said Scrooge. Yes, my buck, he's hanging there now replied the boy. Is it? said Scrooge. Go and buy it, and tell them to bring it here, that I may give them the directions where to take it. Come back with the man, and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes, and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's, whispered Scrooge, rubbing his hands, and splitting with a laugh. <laughs> he shan't know who sent it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. He dressed himself all in his best, and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded every one with a delighted smile. A Merry Christmas to everybody! A Happy New Year to all the world! Hello there! Whoop! Hello! He had not gone far when, coming on towards him, he beheld the portly gentleman who had walked into his counting-house the day before, and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met, but he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, said Scrooge, taking the old gentleman by both his hands, I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mrs. Scrooge? Yes, said Scrooge. That is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon. And will you have the goodness... 
Here Scrooge whispered in his ear. Lord, bless me, cried the gentleman, as if his breath were taken away. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, said Scrooge, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. I don't know what to say to such munificence. Don't say anything, please, retorted Scrooge. Come and see me. Will you come and see me? I will, cried the old gentleman. Thank you, said Scrooge. I am much obliged to you. In the afternoon he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. "'Is your master at home, my dear?' said Scrooge to the girl. "'Yes, sir. He's in the dining-room, sir, along with his mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please.' "'Thank you. <laughs> he knows me,' said Scrooge, with his hand already on the dining-room lock. "'I'll go in here, my dear.' He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. "'Fred?' "'Why, bless my soul!' cried Fred. "'Who's that?' "'It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> I have come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred?' "'Let him in? <laughs> "'Tis a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be hardier. His niece looked just the same.' So did Topper when he came, so did the plump sister when she came, so did every one when they came. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming in late, that was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full eighteen minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. "'Hello?' growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice. "'What do you mean by coming in here at this time of day?' Uh, "'I'm very sorry, sir,' said Bob. Uh, "'I'm behind my time.' "'You are?' repeated Scrooge. "'Yes, I think you are. Step this way, if you please.' Uh, "'It's only once a year, sir.' pleaded Bob, peering from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I, I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge, I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, and therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken, as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary, 
and endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking Bishop Bob. Make up the fires, and buy another skull-cuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, and it was said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.